If you're new or visiting, um, if you're here last week, we learned that David is a warrior, David is a poet, David is a king, and he's a man after God's own heart. And so uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, the life of David as a part of our series. I'm going to be reading the scripture today. It comes from, we're going to take the tail end of last week's passage, 2 Samuel chapter 12, and that's going to lead us right into David's prayer of repentance in Psalm chapter 51. First, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now, Psalm 51 has 19 verses, so I'm just going to read excerpts and portions that we're going to be focusing on today as we go into this text. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from my time, from the time my mother conceived me. Verse 8. <clears throat> Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my, all my iniquity. Verses 18 to 19. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And this is God's word. We said that David is a warrior, a poet, a king, a man after God's own heart, but his life caved in, it imploded. And we said last week that this is why this narrative is so important, because if a man like David, if a man like David, if his life can blow up, then anyone's life can blow up. I mean, this is David. There are a lot of brilliant people in this room, a lot of courageous people in this room. A lot of you are natural leaders, especially in this room, but how many of us, how many of our lives will people be discussing 3,000 years from today? So, if it can happen to David, it can happen to you. Yet, if David's life can be restored, then anyone's life can be restored. But the Bible says you can't change, you can't be restored without repentance. Now, modern people in our postmodern age today, they, they hate that word repentance, but we need it. We're confused by that word. We don't know what that word means, but we really need it. And by looking at this life, by looking at David's life, when he was at his lowest point, at the bottom, God is giving his people, an amazing resource on why we need it, that's repentance, what it is, and how do you do it. Why we need it, what it is, and how do you apply it. Those are our three points today. Why do we need to repent? What is repentance? And then where's the power that enables us to repent? First, we're going to look at why. Why do we need it? We live in a very pragmatic society and so uh, when most people, when they talk about repentance, what they're really saying is, show me the steps. What do I need to do? And we're going to get there. But what they're really saying is, 
I want to repent on my own terms, in my own time, as a supplement, kind of like a tool that you, that you grab when you need it out of the closet. That's what we do, especially when we mess up. No way. Repentance doesn't work like that. Why? Because then you're assuming two things. One, you're assuming that you have the type of self-awareness to know that you're sinning, to know that it's sin in the first place. And secondly, that you have the self-awareness to know that what you need to do is to repent in order to be restored. That's a lot of self-awareness. Sin never feels like sin. If you look at David, when he sent for Bathsheba, if you were here last week, we learned what David did. When he sent for Bathsheba, he didn't feel like a sinner. He felt like a romantic. He felt like a poet. When he gave that order for Uriah to be killed, his friend, his, one of his best friends, he didn't feel like a sinner. He felt like a commander. He felt like a warrior. In the beginning of chapter 12, when Nathan confronted him about the narrative of that rich man who exploited that poor man and took away that one sheep that he owned, and David rose up, he burned with anger. He didn't feel like a sinner. He felt like a king, a just king. The very essence of sin, at the root of it is what? It's self-deception. It's blindness. It's blindness. Not a single person in this room, if you right now are entangled or ensnared in some kind of sin, right now, there's not a single person that's saying in the moment, yes, it's because I'm a sinner, there's a sin, and I love it, I love to do it, yes. Not a single person is doing that. The flaws and the patterns of our heart, the ones that are killing us the most are the ones that we don't see ourselves. That's the reality. That's why sin has such a power over us. Because, because we don't know it, because we don't see it. That's, that's, we don't see how devastating sin is in our lives. So even if you had the tools, even if you had the resources, and even if you're committed to them, you don't really know when to apply it. You don't really know to apply it. You don't really believe that anyone or anything can be that evil, and we certainly don't see how deep it goes. We can't see how deep it goes. We're not willing to go that deep about ourselves. So you may try to change some things, but they're not the real things. What's the solution? And the answer, we said this, it's friends. Godly spiritual friendships, radical gospel community. The Nathans in our lives, if you know the narrative, Nathan was a prophet, but he was also a friend. And without Nathan, David would never have known. He never would have seen his sin. He would have just died. You see that? Thank God for our friends. Faithful people in our lives who just know how to navigate all of our defenses, who know how to confront us, who know how to speak into our lives, who know how to comfort us when we need it, but also stand up to us when we need to be stood up to. Proverbs chapter 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We're dead without them. Some of you here, you're praying for gospel courage. Some of you are praying for gospel humility. Some of us are praying for gospel peace. Friends, <clears throat> let's make the world a safer place for a close set of godly friends to regularly talk about what's really wrong with us in our lives. You can't learn to repent the way you learn how to play golf. You can't learn to repent the way you learn how to swim, where you kind of just go on your own terms and your own timing. Um, you can't 
do that and work that out. If that's what you're doing, before you know it, I mean, how are your resolutions going? It's been about, what, a month and a half? How are they going? How's your diet going? Because mine sucks. Mine sucks. And it's a Super Bowl tonight. We're in trouble, right? (laughs) And the Eagles are playing. It's because before we know it, there's suffering and brokenness let alone on our distractions. The thorns of life are just pressing into us and anything that's going to be merely supplemental in our lives is just going to move over to the periphery, including God. So we need a change that's going to last. We need a theology of change. We need a foundation for change. We need a power for lasting change, right, over any supplement or over anything that we see as a supplement. That's why we need it. Secondly, what is it then? This is where we actually go into the text. What is it? There are three parts. They all hang together as functions, meaning it's not necessarily in order, but they all have to be present in a sense. If you look at Psalm 51, uh, we're going to look at the first five verses first. um, But that first part, the first half of verse four has everything you really need. That's a great way to remember, meditate on it. David says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You want to meditate on something this week? Um, I want you to recite and reflect on Psalm 51 all week, but when you get to verse 4 each day, just emphasize a different word in that first half of verse 4. So what I'm saying is you say, against you, you only have I sinned. 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 You see, uh, you keep going and just kind of reflect and meditate, chew on that first half, and that's really going to tell you everything that you need. It's going to have every component or part of what repentance is when you do that. Because you're going to see the various uh, dimensions of repentance. I'm going to summarize it like this. We are called, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, all your mind and heart and soul and your strength. So if worship is what you do with your mind and your heart and soul, that's your emotions and your will, you know, your strength. If worship is what you do with your mind and your heart and your emotions and your will, and you're just captivated by the beauty of God, captivated by the intimacy of God, then sin is when your mind and your heart and your will are captivated by something else apart from God. And so you've placed God. God has been crowded out. He's moved to the periphery of your life. Then what is repentance? Repentance is when you're restoring your mind and your emotions and your will back to the beauty of God and back to the intimacy with God again. Repentance is a process for that restoration. And so the three main parts of repentance, you see this in this text, it corresponds to loving the Lord with all your mind, your thoughts, with all your heart and soul, that is your your emotions, with all your strength, that is your will. First, we're gonna look at your mind. You need to say, against you, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What does that mean? You need to know. You need to acknowledge. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, 
you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We, oh, we water down those words these days. We don't like to use words like sin. We don't like to say, I've sinned against you. We like to say sorry. But that, that kind of, sometimes it gets you off the hook, but not really. Sorry is what you do, they say, when you spill milk on someone, you bump into somebody, you trip someone by accident. How many, it's so much easier for us to say sorry than, than ask, will you forgive me? You see? And so we have to know with our minds we need to be able to say that against you have I sinned. I've done evil against you. You can't just rely on your conscience, by the way, to do that, to deal with your failure, to deal with your guilt, or to deal with your wrong, because your conscience, I mean, that's a part of us. And so because we are broken by sin, your conscience is also broken by sin as well. And so it's constantly, sometimes it's kind of on in a sense, but it's misfiring and it's confused, and so it's not reliable. Serial killers and Hitler, they had consciences too. But if you believe that you, are, you yourself are sufficient to, to decide what is right and what is wrong for you, then you really can't condemn serial killers and you really can't condemn Hitler. You can't condemn someone who is a racist. Why? Because that's what they did. They were relying on their conscience. Unless you believe that there's an objective standard above your own subjective standard or measure of reality that says this is objectively right and this is objectively wrong, your conscience is constantly going to misfire or delay, or really just be unreliable. You see that? How does David deal with his guilt? How does David deal with his sin? First, he calls it sin. He calls it evil. Not a miscommunication, not a misunderstanding, not just an error in judgment, not just a mistake. He doesn't try to lessen the blow to himself. He knows. He's thought about it. He's processed it. And he doesn't say, I've, done, I've sinned, I've done what is evil in Uriah's sight, in my friend's sight, in the palace's sight. I'm just embarrassed, it's humiliating. That's not all he says. It very well may have been, but that's not what he says. I've done what is evil in my friend's sight or in my palace's sight or even my own sight. And so I'm just beating myself and I'm guilty. We, a lot of times we think that's what repentance is. He says, I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight, in God's sight. He knows the law. He loves the law. He was intimate with God. So God's word was his standard. God's word was his measure. That's what allows him to say, this is right and this is wrong. No, even if his conscience is misfiring, stood up against the law of God and he says, yes, I've sinned. And it is sin. And so, yes, he knew that he violated the law, but he also knows that his sin is more than just a violation of his social law or cultural law or ethical law or moral law or civil law. David knew he didn't just break God's law, even though he was designed as a king to uphold God's law and keep God's law. David knew that he had broken God's heart. This is about relationship. And so second, we've got to move to the heart here. Because he broke God's heart, there is a sorrow. There is a grieving. David sees what he's done, how far he's gone, and he hates his sin. How do you know that? He says, against you, you only. Now, wait a minute. Against you only? What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about the soldiers that died 
under his watch? What about Joab, his general, that he kind of used as a tool? What about the palace? And all of them are kind of watching and trying to grasp and process what's going on with their king. You see that? What about his family and his nation, his people? David isn't writing a dissertation on sin and repentance. He's writing a song about sin and repentance here. He's writing a poem about sin and repentance here. He's writing a prayer about sin and repentance. Yes, if he were to write a dissertation, he would have said objectively, he could have said, I've sinned against my people and against my palace and against my nation and against Uriah and Bathsheba, and I violated the law of God. It's all true. I don't deserve to be king. I don't deserve to be a husband nor a citizen. I deserve death. But if that was it, then he would, focus, he would be focusing on the consequences of his sin. He would be focusing merely on the cost of his sin, the impact that it had. He's not looking at the sin. You see that? Most of us, we repent because the impact of our sin that it it has had on us, not even on other people and certainly not on God, it's why we rarely repent unless we're caught because we focus on how the sin has grieved you, how it's made you sad, the cost that it has had on you, the way it makes you feel guilty. You see that? Not even on other people. That's why, it's, that's why sin still has a power over us. You, know, you go on its date, and uh, you know, you're waiting for your date to arrive. And you wait 30 minutes, you wait an hour, you know they're not going to show up. They're, you're gone. They stood you up. Uh, it hurts. And, you know, you kind of take a day to process it. You call the person up. What happened? They say, well, you know, I met another person. And I took that person instead. And, and <laughs> you're like, you didn't even call me, you say? I mean, that was supposed to be me we were supposed to be going with. Well, then we're not, we can't be in a relationship anymore. And they say, no, 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 hold on, hold on. They're crying and they're saying, I'm really sorry. What can I do to repay you? I mean, and look, the date was like, the bill was like $400. I'll give you $400. Sin focuses on yourself. And so what you do is in your guilt, you try to, you're prone to kind of work it off. Because that alleviates, you're, you're prone to paying. The, there was a cost, I'll pay the cost. Sometimes it's by beating yourself up a little bit and have the person see how sad you are. I'll pay it off a little bit. I'll work it off a little bit. What can I do to repay you, to get back into your good graces? You're not hating your sin. You're just hating the consequences. Imagine a woman who says, well, I'm leaving you because you've been cheating on me. I'm leaving you. And you've been cheating me so many times. And the husband says, no, please don't leave. I will do anything to change. And then they make the change so the woman stays and things kind of go back to normal. But when the threats are gone, the spouse starts to go back to normal too. And so little by little, there's self-deception again and justification again of that, of that selfishness and, and the lies. It's all back. Why? One, we think it's sin that's abnormal, abnormal in our lives. And that a changed life or a good life, the good person, that moral person, that's our true reality, our true selves, when really sin is our true self. And change is impossible without God's spirit 
working in our lives, flooding into our lives every moment of the day through every decision. You see that? And secondly, uh, it's because we think sin is abnormal like the flu. You kind of catch it. But, you know, ah, he's just young. He'll get over it. You know how pragmatic our society is? You see these sin patterns, and you see these sin patterns. If you know a person well, you see those sin patterns as they're growing up. And you just think in your mind, that sinful part of our own broken conscience tells us, well, ah, they'll grow out of it. They're just young. They're just immature. They'll grow. They're not going to grow out of it. And if you don't hate your sin, you're going to grow to only hate the consequences of sin and do whatever you can to avert the consequences of sin. So once the consequences of sin are gone, what's normal, that's what's going to come back. What's natural is going to come back to you. How do we know that David was grieving about his sin? Look at David in verse 4. Against you, you only. In Hebrew, anytime you see the doublet, against you, you, anytime you see that doublet, that represents strong emotional longing. He's not talking about the consequences. Otherwise, he would have talked about Uriah and Bathsheba. There was tremendous impact in his life. There was tremendous impact on other people. He was talking about, I'm longing for you. I've lost you. I've distanced myself from you. That is the sin. And there's a strong emotional longing to return. David, later on in the Bible, he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, he's dying. Actually, Absalom was conspiring against him, and he dies, and he's weeping over Absalom. There's a strong emotional longing to be back with Absalom. Later on, Jesus Christ himself says, Martha, Martha, you are worried about too many things. And so there, there's a strong emotional longing for Martha to get what Mary had, who's sitting by his feet and learning. He says, that's what I want for you. So David here, he's weeping, and he's sorrowful, and he's saying, yes, I've sinned against the law. But it's because primarily I've distanced myself. I've sinned against you. In verse 1, your love is unfailing. You are filled with compassion, and I broke your heart. I've sought other loves in my life. I've been selfish with my love. Right at the start of the psalm, notice. Right at the start of the psalm, he doesn't fill himself with more law to try to get back into God's good graces. I need to do better. I need to try harder. I will be better. I'm going to be, I know I'm better than this. He knows the law. He knows that he broke the law, that he's not better than this. And he, so what does he do? He fills himself he reminds himself, his heart, with more of the love of God, more of his compassion, the grief of God. You see that? Repentance is a turning back to the heart's real treasure. Because, look, the thing that you treasure most in life You treasure it because it assures you most of your worth in life. That's why you're willing to do, I mean, we will protect that treasure that we have with our lives. You'll be willing to do anything for your treasure. For example, you could be in jail for 20 years. But what if you knew at the end, uh, I mean, you ever saw Shawshank Redemption? Famous movie. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. If you're going to see a good movie, watch that movie. 
at the end, you know, what if you knew at the end of that last year in prison, you're going to be out, that there's a treasure that makes you wealthier beyond your dreams, beyond your heart's content? What if you knew that? It's going to keep you going. That's what's going to be your hope. Because the reason why is because jail is not what defines you. Rejection is not what's going to define you. The loss of your reputation or friends or relationships may not be what defines you. Your treasure defines you. It's what's going to keep you going. And whatever it is that keeps you going, maybe it's your family, maybe it's your children, maybe it's uh, your wealth, whatever it is that keeps you going. The Bible says anything apart from your relationship with God, if that is your treasure, then God is going to be expendable in your life. Church is going to be expendable in your life. They're going to be pushed to the periphery, and that's going to make you capable of any sin once it roots. Then all of life is realizing that you've misplaced your ultimate treasure for fool's gold, isn't it? But what if God's love is what gives you real worth? Then everything else may be important, but it's going to be subordinate to God's love. You see that? And for David, he realizes, yes, I sinned against Uriah. I sinned against many people, but it's because I sinned against God first. Priority. That the person I love the most is the person that I hurt the most. Then you're going to hate your sin. Not for what it's cost you, but what it cost God. I mean, if you ever, everybody here has been in arguments with somebody very close to them. You ever been in an argument with somebody? You just had to be right. And you will go at all costs to make yourself right, to justify yourself. When you, when you realize that that's what you're doing, that what you're fighting for, all of a sudden you're like, what am I fighting for? It loses its taste Sometimes right in the middle of it. And, and in the same way, if you turn from God because of your wealth or because your relationships, whatever it is that you're pursuing, whatever it is that has become your treasure, that has crowded God out, it's going to lose its taste because you know it and you acknowledge it and then you're going to feel it. You're going to sense it. You see that? It's going to be soulful in your life and that's going to lead you to the third movement, the third thing. Repentance shapes your will. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. It's going to shape your will. First, you're going to confess it. You're going to confess it with your mouth. You're going to bend your will. And bending your will means you're going to start taking responsibility, full responsibility. Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned. There's no buts. There's no excuses. In fact, the way that you're able to do evil is you don't take responsibility, at least not full responsibility. You don't own it. It's when David takes full moral responsibility that he actually starts to change. Which means, you know, most of us, we say, well, okay, fine, I did it. But it's because they did this. You see that? The moment you stop confessing your sin, forget about what the other person did. The moment you stop owning your sin, You're severely limiting the power to change. With your will, you have to say, yes, it's me. I am that that person. I am that sinner. I am committed to taking the steps because I hate my sin. I've grieved God. I'm going to take the steps 
to break this pattern of sin in my life. Now, a lot of folks here were saying, well, that sounds really good. Tried it, hasn't worked, can't do it, here's why. There's no power. A lot of us, I mean, friends, uh, as a pastor now in this church for 11 years, there's nothing that I see as problematic in the church today than the powerless lives that faithful believers, people who are consistent in the church, are demonstrating. It sucks the life out of people who are coming to life in Christ. Where's the power to change? David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. By the way, he doesn't end with that. He begins with that. He begins with that. Verse 1. Because if you know your sin, and if you've been grieving over your sin, and you hate your sin, and if you take responsibility for your sin, you own your sin, and so you confess your sin, it can't be just because you got caught. Repentance means that you are treasuring something apart from God, and now you're coming back to that real treasure again because you know that the person you love the most is the person that hurt you most is also the person who will forgive you the most. That's what brought David back. The unfailing love of God, that word, unfailing love, that is a very, very special word in Hebrew that is reserved. It's really a one-way love. Case that it's a very one-way love. It's a love that only God can actually do for his people. And he's very specific love. It's not a general love that where, you know, he looks at creation and says, oh, I love what I built. That's not that kind of love. It is a very specific love that he demonstrates and models and gives only to the people that he loves. He says, on that, you have chosen me. And so on that, I'm begging you for mercy. According to your unfailing love, it is a promise that you made to love me forever. And so I'm banking on that, David says. That's what he begins with, you see? That's what changed him. That's what killed the things that were killing him. In fact, from 2 Samuel chapter 12 and on, from, first, from Psalm 51 and on, you never see David. I mean, David's life continues on all through the rest of 2 Samuel. You never see David abusing power for selfish gain ever again. He saw that broken relationship with God. It stuck with him. And, and that, that was enough of a reason. That was large enough of a reason to see a need for change. I mean, why did he commit adultery in the first place? Why did he have a good friend of his murdered in the first place? Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Meaning what? Even before I committed physical adultery with Bathsheba, I've committed spiritual adultery against you, against God. In other words, David needed Bathsheba's arms and her embrace and her warmth because he abandoned God's embrace and God's love and his arms and, and his warmth. He was captivated by Bathsheba's beauty because he looked away from God's brilliance and his beauty. In verse 1, he's saying, I realize there is no love like your love. I mean, the consequences are painful. They are brutal at times. But to be far from God, that is a soulful death. I mean, there are some things, a lot of us, I mean, I'm just going to level with us here, right? I mean, we've, we've broken things in our lives, haven't we? Everyone here, I mean, at this age, I mean, we've broken things in our lives. We've broken relationships in our lives. Some of those really, really intimate relationships, I mean, it goes to the core. It hurts, right? 
it's different. I mean, it's a, it's a, there are sins in our lives that we say, I'll never recover from this. You know why? What you're saying is the consequences are so deep and the pain is so deep because of that. There are consequences sometimes. There are relationships that we've lost, things that we've lost for good. And you may not recover those things, but what fruit comes from repentance then? What was David's prayer? Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness and rejoicing. Verse 15, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. His joy is returning. Verse 9, hide your face for my sins. Hide your face. Forsake my sins. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart. A pure heart with adultery and murder and conspiracy and deception and lies and manipulation. He says, you're going to restore my heart. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence. It's your intimacy that I need. I don't just want it as a supplement to improve my life. I need it for life. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Verse 14, it says, save me. And what? What is the fruit? My tongue will sing of your righteousness. He's remembering this is a God who forgives. His worship is returning in light of that. The fruit of repentance. I mean, David has owned the sin, so now there's real joy, there's real worship again. And that leads to a ton of fruit. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways Sinners will turn back to you. He's saying, my story is going to be used as a lesson for others to turn back to you as a result. I mean, how dare he? This is guy committed murder. He committed adultery. Ain't nobody in this room who knows anybody who committed adultery and murder. And yet this is the king. How dare he? Right? And yet, after all he's done, he's trusting in the unfailing love of God. So what? His confidence is returning. Verse 18, build up the walls of Jerusalem. His sense of leadership, his kingship, his calling is returning. How? The fruit of repentance is not so much that you're confident again, or that you're a teacher again, or that you're a leader again. It's your healing. Your heart is healed. Your heart has changed. You're being restored. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sins. You are, you are forgiven. That loneliness, sex, the power, it's lost influence over David. David had repentance as a result. What happened? He's writing a psalm. I mean, David has a repentance that's singing. The Psalm 51 is a song. This is not a eulogy prayer. This is a resurrection prayer. Now, you're going to say, well, I mean... We don't have that kind of assurance. Where is that assurance for us? We don't have that kind of assurance. We have more, friends. We have even more. David says, do not cast me away from your presence. Centuries later, on the cross, Jesus Christ, who was born in the line of David, a line of kings, a line of, and he was a judge. He says, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? You have cast me away from your presence. David, David says, have mercy on me, 
according to your unfailing love, Jesus Christ, at the lowest point of his life. That was David at the lowest point of his life. He says, have mercy on me. Jesus Christ at the lowest point of his life. He says, Father, forgive them. Have mercy on them. David says, surely I am sinful at birth. But Jesus Christ is the most perfect person who ever lived. He was sinless at birth. He was sinless at birth. But David, he says, hide your face from my sins. Jesus says, you have hid your face from me. Do you know that when he was on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the one time that Jesus Christ doesn't refer to God as his father in the Gospels, in the entire Gospels. I mean, that's David, he, he's praying with all that he's done. He's regained intimacy with God again. And you see that in his prayer. Here's Jesus Christ sinless, innocent. And yet on the cross, he cries out that he has lost intimacy with God. And you see that in his prayer. He's been disowned by God. He's receiving the full wrath of God as a penalty for our sins. The absence of God, why? Because think about it, again, the thing that you treasure most, you're gonna be willing to do anything to protect it, to keep it. You would do anything for it. And so for the glory of God and for his church, whom he called his bride, his love, because of his love, he was ready to die and he dies. He suffers and dies for his people so that people like David, so that people like me, so that people like us can receive a full pardon, pardon from sin, and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Jesus Christ was cast out so we could be brought in. Jesus Christ was disowned so that we could be owned by God. Jesus Christ was broken on the cross so that we could be healed by God. He got, we got all the things. We got all the things that Jesus Christ deserved. Why? Because Jesus Christ received all the things that we deserved. And so we can be restored. We can, Jesus Christ was forsaken so we could be forgiven. Romans chapter 8, there is, now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in hidden in, in union with Christ Jesus. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ got the brokenness. He got the thorns and the suffering pressed into him. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you see? That doublet again? There's this intense emotional longing for God. Except it was not satisfied. He says, I am thirsty. He got the emptiness. David sinned because he was lonely and empty because he was distant and far from God. Jesus Christ, who had the full presence of God, lost it and became, he experienced the cosmic emptiness, the cosmic loneliness for our sakes. And so he died I mean, physically, but he died ultimately. David trusted God's love. He trusted God's compassion that unfailing love. He had a repentance that sings. Friends, you know, back when I was younger and I messed up, you may, be, you may be like me, I used to think I need to serve more, I need to pray harder, 
I need to do more. I need to obey visibly better. I need to, you just beat yourself up to show that you're sorry. Yes, we need to obey. Yes, we need to serve. But look at David. That was an outcome. That was a fruit of repentance. He didn't do that to earn forgiveness. Repentance does not earn forgiveness because then it still depends on David. That means then it still depends on you and your works. Forgiveness depends on the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross. And to the degree that you trust that Jesus Christ lived the life that you should live and died the death that you should die, well, repentance doesn't earn forgiveness, but it certainly accesses it. Otherwise, you will be empty. And it's an empty world. Otherwise, you will be lonely, and it is a lonely world. Jesus Christ, he atoned for sin. It's the only way we're going to be healed. David saw that. And he was completely restored. Will you see that? If you do, he'll be restored. Let's sing together.